Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And as of this recording, the robot singularity has probably not occurred. Mm, as far as we know. As far as we know. But we're not really sure how to define that, right? Right. It's kind of uh, an evasive term. I mean, roughly we're talking about computers, robots reaching the level where they not only um, um, meet us on the uh, the same uh, mental plane, but they exceed us and they become greater than us. And they, and then in various scenarios, could conceivably play out. Um, people really like to have fun with fun with the uh, the darker images. They just leave us in the dust, like literally. Yeah, yeah, like they just they take over the world, or they just decide to destroy all humans, or. Or our lives become so robotic and so enhanced by robotics that uh, that the the human part of our life becomes kind of a kind of a core to it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, but not a necessity of it. Well, I think I, I love talking about the singularity because it does um, it brings up so many different points of view, mm-hmm. and you and I have talked about it plenty, and I always feel like you have like this very um, positive outlook. On the singularity, whereas sometimes I get paranoid and I think, oh no, oh yeah, to be taken over. And like so, those days when you you don't even come into work and we have to call and see who we are because it's the the singularity and anxiety is getting taking over. Yes, you know? those are the days when I've locked myself in my bunker. Yeah, yeah. Whereas but, I tend to look at it like you know if the if the coffee machines become as smart as humans, then we're just going to have really great coffee. I mean, that's see. Yeah, I love that. That that's the sort of positive pluck that I'm talking about here. Um, but in that context, you know, it, it does. It seems like okay, this is something that could be far away, or it could be something that's really near. We don't know. Right. But robots are are having a fundamental impact on our lives in myriad ways, right? Yeah, I, I remember. Um, I, I was looking into some information about recruiting into uh, computing programs, and they pointed out that there's virtually no field. Uh, of study anymore that does not contain uh, programming and uh, and computerization, right. and it's going to get to where there's going to be no part of of our society that isn't touched by robotics in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Robotics or uh, you know or or really high end uh, programming or us even being touched by robots, right? right? I mean, we've talked about Roxy, the the yeah. sex bot, literally touched by. Well, I don't know if the, the robots doing the the. In this situation, the robot's just being touched, I think. Oh, but they are, I'm sure very soon there will be touching. Yeah, but it's very hard to argue this consensual. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. And, and, unless it's programmed, I suppose. Yeah, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah, yeah. Um, and we will get to that, definitely. But again, thinking about um, robots and how they're being used in day-to-day life, uh, we actually turn to Dr. Ronald Arkin. He's the Regents Professor in the School of Interactive Computing and is the director of the Mobile Robot Laboratory at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Yeah. It's not a mobile lab, though. It doesn't, you know. It's not like a bus. It doesn't break away from the rest of the building <laughs> or anything and uh, it's never one go gallivanting around Atlanta. No, no. Uh, but he and his team, along with research engineer Alan Wagner, they've blazed the way when it comes to robotics and in particular thinking about robotic ethics. And they have created a robot or robots that can deceive. Yeah, and it all boils down to... Um an algorithm, uh, or more specifically, a cognitive deception modeling algorithm, or, or a series of algorithms, yeah. and it involves not not only giving the the robot the um, capacity 
to fool another robot or a human, but giving it the ability to decide when to fool another human. Because that's an important thing. We all have the ability, as humans, we all have the ability to deceive, the ability to lie. And one of the, 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 the core things we have to decide in life is when to tell the truth and when to lie. And if it's, if you're out of balance on that, uh, life can get pretty messy and nobody will want to hang out with you. Either because you never, um, you never code anything, uh, uh, for consumption. You never, uh, you know, dish out a white lie or two, or you just lie all the time and are kind of a jerk. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean. So we don't want to create jerk robots. No, no, no. But the problem is that, that robots in their simple form are, they're, they're robotic. They, they're, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to code anything, um, uh, to make it go down easier. Yeah, yeah. So it is really interesting. Like, how do you, how do you do this? How do you, what, what is deception anyway, even when, mm-hmm. when you're talking about a robot? And so we actually talked to, uh, Dr. Arkin about this, and this is what he had to say about deception and what it is defined as in robotics. It's actually a definition that we borrowed from cognitive science, which is a, a false communication that tends to benefit the communicator. Mm-hmm. So the important thing is that you will benefit by saying something that is untrue. Uh, now, uh, in the press, this has often been referred to as lying robots and the like as well, too. Uh, it's a false communication. Is lying leaving a trail in the ground? I don't know. That's a verbal act. Uh, this, well, I could argue this is more expansive than uh, simply lying uh, in this case. It's basically trying to create a deception to make someone believe something that isn't true and act uh, in a way. The work uh, that we looked at uh, in the military... Uh, for the military was more a fundamental question of what deception is and how it could be employed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not simply uh, writing up lookup tables and saying these are the sets of actions. As I think I mentioned, if I didn't, there is an entire field manual for the U.S. Army on deception, uh, deceptive techniques, uh, uh, because it's important. It's crucially important and an appropriate way uh, to conduct warfare. Uh, but this isn't just saying, do this in this set of circumstances, do this in this set of circumstances. This is, I have to understand you. I have, speaking as a robot, I have to understand you and learn what your potential outcomes are. And one of the other interesting factors in that paper, which I was about to mention as well, too, is that it was observed, at least in this narrow case that we studied, the more sensors that you have, the more, the easier it is to deceive you, which was not intuitively obvious. You'd think, gosh, you know, if I have more ways to understand what's around me, I would be more likely to get the right action. But deception works in this particular case, uh, it appears, uh, due to the fact that we can uh, exploit multiple channels uh, of information. You know, um, hearing that, I can't help but be reminded of... uh Isaac Asimov, uh, he, he, of course, had the, the classic book, I, Robot, which is a series of short stories about, about robots. And they're very, they're very analytical. They're all about, uh, you know, robots obeying the three rules of robotics and humans trying to figure out how the robots are, are, are behaving. And there's a story uh, in there called Little Lost Robot. And, and in this, a researcher loses his temper and swears at a particular robot and tells it to get lost. And it does so. And then the uh, the chief uh, robo psychologist, uh, Dr. Susan Calvin, comes in to find it. Um, so I couldn't help but be re- reminded of that. It's a, it's a fairly lighthearted tale. Yeah, actually, that's uh, that's interesting because just in in the, the context of the experiment mm-hmm. that Arkin and Wagner did, uh, they used interdependence theory and game theory to develop the, the algorithms that um, 
tested the value of deception in a specific situation. And the situation had to satisfy two key conditions to warrant deception. Okay. Uh, there has to be a conflict between the deceiving robot and the seeker, and the deceiver must benefit from the deception. So what we're talking about here is like an elaborate uh, hide-and-seek game. Or not yeah. so elaborate, essentially. Um, to test their algorithms, they ran 20 hide-and-seek experiments with two autonomous r- robots, and they had colored markers, which they lined up along three potential pathways to locations where the robot could hide. And so the hider robot randomly selected a hiding location from the three location choices and then moved toward that location, knocking down colored markers along the way. So once it reached a point past the markers, the robot changed course and then hid in one of the other two locations. And the presence or the absence of standing markers indicated the hider's location to the seeker robot. Okay. Well, this is this is like a very basic form of deception. Uh, we, we see this in movies all the time where the hero is running through a, an office building trying to escape somebody. So what does he do? He runs, he or she, runs to this door at the end of the hallway, opens it real wide, lets it shut, but then goes off in another direction. Right. The guys, uh, they're chasing him, or gals, come around the corner and see the door slamming. They're like, ah, they went that way, chase them. Or it's like if you uh, if you're in the forest and you uh, you're making your way past these branches. If you started snapping branches along one direction and then backtracked and went Ooh, somewhere like else that. to hide, yeah. and then the, your pursuers would come through and they'd say, "Well, look, clearly they went this way because this is where the branches are snapped off." Right, right. And it seems basic, right? I mean, yeah. it, and it is in in, um, in the sense, the physical sense that we think of. But think about all of that information, all that data that you have to absorb, and then the choices that you have to make on that, that we take that for granted, right, with, yeah. with our brains. But trying to program them, cr- program that in a robot is particularly interesting and quite a challenge. And so what seems rudimentary now and is rudimentary in terms of robotics, we know will become much more nuanced later on. And so that's why a lot of people are looking at this deception, even if it is on this level. Mm-hmm. A sort of hide and seek level and saying, wow, okay, you can do that in robots now. What, what is that going to look like in five years? And so, um, Arkin actually talked a little bit about the attention the experiment received in that regard and how programming a robot to deceive is really similar to thinking like a con man. A significant amount of, uh, press, I guess yeah. is the best way to put it. Attention is another way uh, to put it which I would contend is probably somewhat disproportionate uh, to uh, the results that we obtained. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a, it is a controversial piece of work, uh, nonetheless. It was the first in-depth study of the phenomena of uh, robot deception yeah. and the ability of a robot to deceive other robots uh, or potentially human beings uh, as well. Uh, and we looked very closely at interdependence theory, a mm-hmm. cognitive science model, as well as game theory, as the basis uh, for understanding two things uh, about robotic deception. Uh, the first is, when is it appropriate to deceive? Because you don't want a robot to be deceiving people all the time, right. or else it would not have any value. And we were typically looking at, in this early work, what I'll call one-shot deception, mm-hmm. trying to deceive someone just once, and that's good enough. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a con man. The second uh, is how. Uh, to be able to accomplish that. And I could talk a little bit more in depth uh, about those. But I should say uh, that much of the work that was based on some of Alan's uh, earlier work on trust, Mm -hmm. because as any good con man knows, a precursor to deception is the establishment of trust. But we were interested in that particular case of learning how a uh, robot could trust a human being Mm -hmm. rather than 
the classic case for man-machine systems. Uh, how can a human learn to trust a robot? Right. Uh, there are many instances such as um, uh, 9-11, for example, when uh, people act uh, in ways that are uh, improper, to say the least. Right. And automation should be able to override them uh, when they are doing that. You, machines should know when not to trust a human being. And using the same kind of models and the same kind of situational analysis, but now looking at ways in which we could induce the observer, which we'll call the mark mm -hmm. in this particular case, which okay. is the language you would use uh, right. in this, uh, that we could induce a outcome belief in the mark that an action they would take would be more beneficial to them than would be if they took another action but it actually ends up being more beneficial to the robot in this particular case uh, is the uh, uh, strategy that we use to address the how. Imagine a military situation, and uh, the robot has valuable information, or in and of itself it's a valuable resource and does not want to be captured uh, or uh, reverse engineered or whatever the case may be. Now, granted, you could put self-destruction capabilities in it, so it uh, would not be the case, but that destroys the asset that you would okay. want to preserve. And it may have valuable information of its own, uh, in its own right. Uh, strangely, R2-D2 in uh, the original Star Wars uh, comes to mind, you know, get this to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Right. That wasn't our motivation. <laughs> uh, um, so uh, what not just playing hide-and-seek in the sense of some other folks have done this with robots, is mm -hmm. robot finds a good place to hide and hopes for the best. But in this case, the robot models the pursuer using a very crude version of what's called theory of mind. It tries to establish what would the pursuer do in these particular sets of circumstances and leaves a, as a consequence of that, leaves a false trail. It's kind of like uh, putting mud down or tracks down and saying, I'm over here, but then backtracking and hiding in a different location. So it is the belief, that, the robot's belief, that if the pursuer sees that trail, the pursuer will move in that direction. And if that is indeed the case, the robot hides at some other location, the pursuer goes down that trail, and then the robot can escape uh, after that. So that's the notional aspect in that particular case. So in a way, we're, we're, we're kind of talking about robot original sin here. <laughs> you know, up until this point, they've uh, we've just had robots doing what they're programmed to do. And if they, if say an industrial robot just you know, potent say you know welds a man's face off, it, it's not doing that with any intent to weld someone's face off. Uh, but but in this scenario, we're we're creating a robot that can lie. And and I, I find it really interesting that it's you know we're talking about a very simple form of lying, a very simple form of deception that will grow into more complicated forms of behavior. It's it's kind of like looking at, say, the first time like a, a child uh, lies, mm -hmm. or even just how lies themselves have the tendency to start very small and then, and then if unresolved, to grow and grow and grow and to become this greater, more complicated and, and complex thing. Yeah, it is. And, but when you think about lies, you also know that there's, uh, there's another side to it, that it, lies can be really helpful, right? Like, yeah. They can actually... And we do it for many reasons, but sometimes we do it to spare people's feelings or there might be a dangerous situation and you need to lie about something. I don't know. Yeah. Paramedics arrive on a scene. The, you know, the guy asks, Hey doc, am I going to make it? The, the doc's not going to say, uh, maybe, or, you know, the doc's going to say, hang in there. We can right. do this. <laughs> right. Right. So, I mean, they're essential to our own existence and they're certainly essential to warfare. And so that's when you look at something like these, what they're being called Decepticons, these, uh, deceiving robots, 
um, that they could actually be very useful in search and rescue missions. Right. Um, and of course, there's the idea that they could be more fully engaged in battle. Uh, but of course, the challenge is to be able to give robots the ability to judge a situation and act accordingly and as ethically as possible. So again, that's, that's where these, um, these sort of uncomfortable bits of information start to butt up against each other because it's like here on the one hand, we have this great technology that can do this. On the other hand, you know, it's, you know, we're humans and we know that we are programmed not necessarily to be the most altruistic beings. Um, so how can we create something that's not necessarily in our image, but is better than us? Hmm. It's an interesting proposition. So what there's a good scenario of, of that sort of judgment center that we have that we're trying to actually finesse, hopefully, uh, in robots. And the scenario at a robotic level is um, what Arkin is talking about when he talks about instilling in robots a more sophisticated, nuanced way to assess a situation and act accordingly. Uh, this is from a New York Times article. It's called A Soldier Taking Orders from Its Ethical Judgment Center. Uh, they talked to Dr. Arkin about this computer model, and it's a robot pilot who flies past a cemetery and spots a tank at the entrance. And this is the target in this scenario. But there's a group of civilians in this computer model, and they're gathered at the cemetery, and the robot pilot considers the data and decides to keep going. And, but soon it spots another tank out in a field all alone, and it decides to fire on it. So, again, here are these different models that... Uh, Scientists and researchers are trying to put together in order to, you know, assemble this sort of judgment center for robots themselves. Uh, and there's obvious limitations to the technology right now as it stands. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. But... There's the possibility that machines could one day assess situations with the advantage of not engaging in our something like our own confirmation bias, uh-huh. you know, where we sort of perpetuate information that's faulty information because we want it to fit with our worldview. Um, and then also we get impassioned about things, right? Uh, we don't always think clearly, particularly in cases of war. Right. Yeah. So we talked to Arkin. And we wanted to to find out why people might be frightened of this par- this proposition, where we might have a technology that could essentially help us one day to make better choices in in uh, war, but also you know why we might be a little bit freaked out by that. Well, I mean, the basic prospect is making war easier to wage, like easier to decide to wage war. I mean, that's one of the the big arguments ag- against robotic warfare is that it becomes. If there are no human, if there are fewer human lives on on our side on the line, and fewer uh, chances of there being some sort of a, a horrible headline grabbing uh, scenario uh, in terms of enemy casualties, mm-hmm. then why not declare war right over any little thing? Over is you know energy crisis, you need some oil, just declare war because the robots you're not going to lose anybody. You're not going to have grieving families voting, uh, uh, voting against you in the, in the upcoming election. And if your robots can, you know, are really good at, at not, um, uh, causing a whole bunch of civilian deaths, then, uh, it's more surgical and strategic. Ah, uh, see, and this, this is what is so interesting, uh, that Arkin has to say about this, um, it, particularly when you talk about protocols of war. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what he has to say about it. 
Well, uh, we need to talk about it is the most important thing. And as I've often said, that the research I have done in that particular space um, is one aspect, but the discussion that that research engenders is as important as the research itself, uh, at least to me. And as such, I've spent a lot of time talking about it, not only uh, to the media, uh, but also uh, at military bases, at philosophy conferences, uh, uh, at the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, where they developed the Geneva Conventions uh, just last month, uh, a variety of different locations, uh, uh, ethics uh, groups and the like as well, too, to answer that very question. So it would be really presumptuous of me to say uh, this is perfectly safe, don't worry about it, or the sky is falling, the sky is falling, like uh, some of my colleagues uh, are doing as well too. Uh, what I do say is that if we are going to allow these robots to make these life or death situations uh, decisions, if we're going to allow these robots to make these life or death decisions on their own to some degree, I mean, they're not just going to go out and start looking at someone and say, should I kill that individual? They will be tasked by a human being in a mission context and then make that particular decision. But if we're going to do that, we need to understand what it is that we're doing, what, if any, bounds are appropriate. And from my perspective, if we're going to do that, they must adhere to the existing laws of war and the rules of engagement uh, as we as a uh, society uh, already do. And so that's what my work uh, is about. I have often said that while I do believe that we can actually do better than human beings uh, in these situations, uh, that if it ended up that intelligent, lethal robots were banned from the battlefield, I'm not averse to that. Although I still do believe that we can actually do better than human beings in making the right decisions regarding uh, lethal uh, application of force under certain circumstances. And it's really important to understand that I am not talking about replacing a soldier with a robot. I'm talking about augmenting soldiers with robots and using them in highly specialized missions such as building clearing operations, counter sniper operations, things of that particular sort, uh, which is uh, uh, quite different than saying, uh, here's a Terminator uh, and uh, that's going to replace that particular uh, soldier. Very narrow, well-defined situations where something called bounded morality applies. And that's what makes it tractable because human morality is extremely complex, involving multiple brain systems and other aspects of that. Uh, machine learning, deliberation, all sorts of things could be brought to bear uh, in applying it in that context. But what's interesting is the lethal application of force is relatively low-hanging fruit for a person dealing with uh, computational morality uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the primary one is that philosophers have been thinking about it for thousands of years. Under what circumstances is it appropriate to kill someone? And we have, as a civilization, a Western civilization, uh, codified uh, the laws of war uh, through the Hague and Geneva Conventions, uh, and others as well, too, and said, when you kill someone, this is how you do it, and this is what you don't do. And we tell our soldiers, we don't hand them a rifle and say, figure out what the morality is in the battlefield, and say, go and uh, 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 conduct your mission. We train them, and we say, this is what you do, and this is what you don't do. I also want to preface this. I have the utmost respect for our warfighters, our young men and women in the battlefield. It's crucially important uh, that that be understood. Uh, but human beings, not all, but many, perform outside the bounds of what is prescribed. Uh, 
due to uh, reasons such as frustration, anger, fear, uh, scenario fulfillment, which is what you were talking mm -hmm. about earlier, where you might believe something is going to occur and then discard new incoming evidence, a cognitive uh, phenomena. So how, uh, how we cope with all these different kinds of things uh, leads to, in certain cases, the commission of war crimes. And if you look at the Surgeon General's report, which came out in 2006, if I remember correctly, in studying the uh, uh, data of the self-reported data from the soldiers in Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom, uh, or I, I think that was the one, Iraqi Freedom, mm -hmm. um, uh, the numbers are staggering in terms of what was uh, believed to be unethical behavior in terms of the performance, the, their inability to report on uh, unethical uh, actions of their uh, colleagues, their inability to uh, uh, distinguish between uh, uh, insurgents and civilians. They 20%, almost 20%, considered you're either a, a, an enemy or you're not. Uh, and uh, uh, there was nothing in between uh, in that case. So they didn't understand the notion of non-combatants. 19% uh, considered non-combatants insurgents under the circumstances. And the data went on and on which was, that was mind-blowing, if you want to talk about that, at least to me, in terms of the potential room for improvement. So he makes a really interesting case in developing the technology, but stepping back from it and saying that we're at a, a point in history where we can actually look at it and say, you know, ethically, should we do this? Should we consider the following things? Um, and I think that that's, that's interesting because in science, we've always sort of rushed forward, right, right. historically, because we've been really excited about what we could make, what we could create, what we could do. And then after the fact, step back and went, whoa, you know, maybe maybe uh, this was misused or this this was a misused application. Right. So I think it's really heartening that he is um, someone who's at the forefront of the ethics and is really trying to tell people, like, you know, let, let's think about this. Let's be smart about this. Yeah, and especially in informing the the people that are in the position to make decisions, uh, who are many times a pretty, pretty big distance away from, from actual understanding of, uh, of what's possible and what's not possible mm -hmm. in computing and robotics. So you don't want somebody that's, you know, some politician that's far removed from it saying, yeah, robot soldiers, that sounds great. Uh, we're not going to have, uh, so many soldiers die. Cool. Let's do that. But, but need, but, but they need to understand on some level that what the, what's at stake ethically and yeah. what the ethical arguments are. Yeah. And what Arkin also had pointed out to, um, when he and I talked is that the lawmakers most of the time aren't even really aware of what's yeah. available technologically out there. So a lot of this is trying to, um, educate the public and, and policymakers. And make them aware so that they can understand what's at stake. Uh, so it's very interesting. And I have to say that, uh, you, again, you've always taken the tack of, um, being more positive when it comes to singularity. And I've always kind of been, uh, they're going to take us over. <laughs> um, you know, I have my days, but in talking to Arkin, I thought that he had a really interesting perspective on that as well. Um, and something that he, he talks about, uh, robots in the context of them filling an ecological niche for us. Okay. So let's listen to this bit of, uh, information about the technological singularity. And the lay definition is referred to as the point where machine intelligence exceeds human intelligence. 
are we there already? Watson won in Jeopardy, right? So, uh, uh, you know, it's a question of how you define these things uh, as, uh, as well. At some levels, we're already there. Uh, so, is it when we have data? You know, I, I don't even understand exactly what the singularity is. Um, and uh, I do believe the machines will get smarter and smarter. I actually don't believe they necessarily should be compared to human intelligence. I think robotic intelligence, just as dog intelligence and ape intelligence and ant intelligence, is different than human intelligence. I believe that robotic intelligence will be something, if allowed to be, instead of forced into the human paradigm, something different uh, than uh, human intelligence. Uh, they fill what are referred to as ecological niches, places within the world where they can survive and prosper and grow. Why on earth would we want, or in space for that matter, why anywhere would we want to create something that is completely and utterly competing with us in the same ecological niche? That can lead to extinction in that case where you'll be displaced. Uh, I don't think that's a wise idea, uh, personally. Uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do robotics. We just need to do the right kind, uh, whatever that uh, happens uh, to be. We can't all go off in, to our corner, raise our flag, and say, yes, yes, no, no, uh, we have to talk with each other and understand. And by each other, I don't mean a bunch of roboticists. I mean policymakers, I mean roboticists, I mean the military, I mean civilian populations, I mean theologians, I mean stakeholders is what they're referred to. All the stakeholders have to get together and uh, come to grips uh, with what it is that we're creating and start to think, first of all, what needs to be regulated. And once that is determined, how much regulation is appropriate under these sets of circumstances. And this is an ongoing process. It's not uh, going to be a set of commandments that says, this is it, this is the way it will always be. It's a living document and the like. And some of my colleagues are doing that uh, in other spaces as well. But I've been very pleased uh, with the traction uh, that robot ethics uh, is beginning to get. Uh, it was... Uh, it felt a little bit at times in the early days of a voice crying in the wilderness, uh, uh, but uh, more and more people uh, are getting involved. Uh, there's a new special issue on uh, robot ethics coming out in the IEEE magazine on robotics and automation. So uh, I see many of my colleagues starting to say things about it and to take it seriously and to speak their minds as to what they think is right as opposed to uh, what I, as a scientist myself, uh, when I was a bench chemist or whether I was a roboticist, we're driven purely by curiosity-driven research where we just want to understand something, whether it's a, a how to make a better uh, a molecule or whether it's how to understand the principles of intelligence and imbue them in the machine. Concurrently, we need to understand uh, how or what the consequences of that are. Uh, of that is. Uh, and uh, once we do that, uh, I think uh, we can truly call ourselves responsible scientists. Okay, so how do you feel about that? Does it make you feel a little easier about the the robots uh, gaining power? or uh, or? Yeah, actually it did. I, it made me understand it more in the context of, okay, well, you know, it would be really, uh, and we've said this before, really stupid for us to create something that destroys us. Uh, right. I mean, it's not... It's, it's, it's not beyond. It's certainly not beyond the pale. No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could do it, but knowing that the discussion is going on mm -hmm. and hearing Arkin talk about um, robots really enhancing our intelligence or even making us rethink our intelligence is, for me, sort of a paradigm shift. And that it, you know, humans don't become the other. 
Um, but the other in the sense that, you know, this is perhaps some sort of technology that can continue to help us evolve, not necessarily be trampled upon and then become human servants to our robot overlords. Yeah, I, I guess I guess people f- fear it uh, in a way. It reminds me when I um, when I was a kid and used to live in uh, in Tennessee, and there was this um, there was this trailer we would drive by, and it started as a single trailer, and then they built onto the side of it like a big room here and a big room there, and then there was there was more and more until you couldn't see the trailer anymore, and then one day they pulled the trailer out of the middle of it, and uh, and I guess filled it in, uh, and just made it a house. So I, I guess one could. <laughs> Fear. What if we are the trailer in this scenario where we continually augment human life and the human experience and in our an entire culture here on Earth and beyond, and then we reach the point to where the trailer is no longer necessary part of the equation? Huh. But I'm not saying I share that idea, but uh, I like that idea. I thought you were going to start off with some, some sort of Boo Radley story there, Boo Radley. as as perhaps uh, embodying the. The robot, and we just didn't know the robots well enough yet. No, well, yeah. now growing up, we did have the town robot, but uh, <laughs> it, it was largely um, it, its, its main duties were just cleaning the streets and uh, apprehending stray cr- criminals. You know, I see. But I, see. I mean, that's everybody's small town experience. Of course, yeah. Jeez, Paris, Texas, best robots ever. <laughs> Um, well, this was really interesting to, to talk to Dr. Arkin, and we actually have a lot of other information um, that he he uh, shared with us so very generously. He talks about uh, robot ethics in the context of the class that he teaches, which is Robots in Society, and he, he talks um, with his students about... Human students. His human students about actual human relations with robots, which we've talked about before, sex with bots. Um, that's not his entire class. Um, there are many other ethical uh, situations that he talks about. But we will definitely do some follow-up with Dr. Arkin and some other topics. It was really fascinating to to learn more about what he's doing here in Atlanta at Georgia Tech. And we'd like to thank him for taking the time to speak with us. Um, and just so you know a little bit more about Dr. Arkin, he served as a founding co-chair of the IEEE Robotics and Automation Society, Technical Committee on Robotic Ethics from 2004 and 2009, and is the co-chair of the Society's Human Rights and Ethics Committee, as well as the IEEE RAS Liaison to the Society on Social Implications of Technology. Well, hey, uh, we have some uh, listener mail. So I think I'm going to jump into that. Um, all, all the bits that I have here are actually uh, a follow-up to our Pope on a Cosmic Rope uh, episode. Yes. Which uh, we received a number of comments about um, and uh, and seemed to get a lot of people thinking. And uh, oddly enough, I don't think we, we received any hate mail over that. I mean, not that, no, we, actually, not that we were all... fishing for it. but No. I mean, yeah, after all, we did sort of hint that they might be wearing uh, skinny jeans under their vestments. I thought yes, but, for sure someone would strike out at us against that, but you know. But uh, you know, I think you know the, the obviously people people of faith have a sense of humor, and uh, and we actually uh, heard from a few of them here, uh, as well as uh, uh, one person who just has a reading uh, recommendation. Our listener Albert writes in and says, "Enjoyed your podcast. I was reminded of a book by Maria Doria Russell, The Sparrow, which fits into your theme: space exploration funded by the Vatican encounters aliens." That's a bare-bones description. It's dark and deals with complex theological issues. Well, that sounds good. All right. I may have to add that to the list of things to read. The uh, next one comes from Matthew, um, who is a scientist 
from New Jersey. And Matthew writes, Dear Robert and Julie, great fan of the podcast, but when I heard your Pope on a cosmic rope, I cringed a little at, uh, on your idea of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is not a democracy, so what's popular or in style doesn't change the doctrines. I can assure you no great principles get changed without careful religious deliberations, and in fact, extraterrestrial life has never been con- uh, contradictory to Catholicism. Thanks for reading my input, and keep up the good work. All right. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, Robert, you haven't said a thing about the hair shirt that I'm wearing. Oh, well, if, well go ahead and, and talk about the hair shirt. I, okay. I had been just being polite about it. But, you know. Well, I know, and, and I thank you for that. You're very sensitive, but um, it is probably the second or third time I've been wearing this hair shirt. But now I'm wearing it because I believe that it was uh, me who called Clostridium difficile a virus when it is indeed bacteria. Oh, did did the bacteria itself write in? It did. Oh, it's, that's embarrassing. <laughs> I know, that's awful when the actual bacteria writes in and says, I am no virus, um, and I would like for you to go ahead and, and make the world know that that's the case. And so I apologize, T-Diff. All right, well, uh, ho- hopefully that will uh, that will appease any uh, both virus and bacteria that are uh, listening to us. Yeah. Uh, one more bit of listener mail. This one from uh, listener uh, Ophelia from Devon, United Kingdom, uh, where I think I've actually been. Um, I think it's on the on one of the canals or something. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, if it's the town I'm thinking about, it's really really cool little town. Uh, anyway, she writes in and says, I really enjoyed your podcast on the relationship between science and the Catholic Church. I've wondered since I was a little kid what Catholics would do if aliens were discovered, so I really got a kick out of the topic. I'm a devout Catholic studying archaeology, so the conflict between the Church and science is an important one to me, especially concerning evolution. It's really encouraging to hear about people like Guy Consomango, who are passionate about both religion and science, and what he said about fundamentalists was excellent. In fact, while they have certainly been that way in the past, the modern Catholic Church is not nearly so harsh about its views as a lot of people seem to think. They have been okay with and even encouraged adult stem cell research for many years, and Pope John Paul II published an encyclical stating that much of evolutionary theory is not in direct contradiction with the views of the Church. So I'm really glad to hear that the Church has been making efforts to make their views better known. I hope they continue with this because it would make me feel much more confident in being a Catholic archaeologist. Keep going with the great podcasts. I always enjoy them when I'm taking a break from work or going to bed, and I like how I get to learn something new even when I'm relaxing. Cheers. Cheers to you, Ophelia. Thank you for writing. Yes, and uh, if anybody else out there has stuff you want to share with us, I encourage you to visit Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. Uh, find us on Facebook. Uh, you know, push like, uh, join us, follow us, and see what we're up to. And on Twitter, I encourage you to uh, share cool links that you may find or cool facts that, that worm their way into your life uh, by just throwing it up on Twitter with the hashtag Blew My Mind, one word, the hashtag hash Blew My Mind. And uh, and then we'll see it, and we'll get to share it, and uh, because I think that's a hashtag we really can reclaim as uh, listeners. That's right. We can find some very cool, mind-blowing stuff to share with each other. Yeah. And if you would like to share some other mind-blowing stuff with us, you can always do so via email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.